0: Hey everybody, welcome to Sporting Dog Talk. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today, I've got a crazy episode for you. Uh, talking to a guy named Don Wargowski who spends a good part of his year as a mountaineering guide in the Himalayas of all places. Don had an amazing experience with a dog while climbing a very very tall mountain in crazy crazy circumstances and his story i don't want to give too much away in this but his story is something that i think every dog owner and dog lover is going to go holy cow that's amazing this was one of the coolest interviews i've ever done in my life and it's it's a somewhat of a deviation from a lot of our training content and picking a breeder and picking a puppy content. This is a different kind of story, but if you love dogs, and I know you do because you're listening to this, do yourself a favor and listen to this story about a mountain climbing dog, because it is incredible. As always, thank you so much for listening. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. It means so much to us to know that people are giving us an hour every week out of their lives to listen to these podcasts. So thank you. Come here, bear. I'm dead, bear. Hunt am dead. That dog is family. You do something with a dog; it, it improves your overall quality of life. But uh Don Wargowski, how you doing today, buddy?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, I am. I am stoked to have you on. I don't know if you can tell or not, but I. I get to interview a lot of different people for my job, uh, but we kind of stay in a couple of specific lanes and you've got a crazy story that our listeners are going to love that we're going to get to. But first, uh, can you just explain a little bit what your life is like, what you do and, and let, give people a glimpse into what it's like to be you?
1: Oh, sure. Um, I'm a full-time mountain climbing guide. Uh, I work for a company called Alpine Ascents. It's based here in Seattle. And for them, I guide on Denali in Alaska, several mountains here in the state of Washington, uh, down in Argentina in South America. And then another company that I work for, I work uh, primarily in the Himalayas on mountains there. Um, Last month I did uh, a mountain called Monteslu, which is the eighth tallest mountain in the world. It's one of the 14, 8,000 meter peaks as a preparation climb for Everest that I have coming up in the spring. And, uh, between those, I'm leaving tomorrow for an Everest base camp and an Island peak trip, which is also in Nepal. Um, but guiding takes me out into the hills. Uh, most of my time uh, this year, I think I'm guiding like 220, 230 days away from home. Uh, got a very patient wife and dog <laughs> to deal with that, but, um, but yeah, I, I mostly spend my time in the mountains. So I love
0: the mountains, but I don't love the mountains that way. Were you, don't take this the wrong way, but did you have like a traumatic brain injury when you were little or something? Because what you do and, and not only, not only do you do the mountains, the mountaineering stuff, but you're a, you're a whitewater rafting guide as well, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. I, I started um, climbing actually uh, based out of Pittsburgh, which is not exactly a climbing Mecca. Um, but started there with um, just a nonprofit profit outdoor group and then did some rock guiding in West Virginia. And there is where I started the um, raft guiding as well. And with raft guiding, uh, that's taken me to uh, Costa Rica. I did a season working down there, a season in New Zealand, um, several states here in the U.S. I, I really enjoy the water, but I find that um, a lot of my personal time was heading more toward the mountains, so I kind of took the career path that direction. Um, but I grew up in Ohio in a place that, um, well, a home that looks very much like your set there. Um, <laughs> grew up hunting and fishing and always had labs and hunting dogs growing up. And um, I think my parents kind of instilled a love for the outdoors in me when I was very young. And then in college, I started traveling, kind of branching out more into some, uh, you know, more traveling internationally, as well as be, spending time on the big peaks. And um, I just got hooked. I can't seem to stay away from it. Now. So
0: you're like a you're like an honest, true adrenaline junkie in some capacity, huh?
1: Yeah, I, I think it kind of starts that way. Um, you know, we're, there's always a drive in me, at least, to you know, do something taller, harder, more challenging. Um, I wouldn't quite say adrenaline junkie though. For me, it's, um, that's kind of where I'm more at peace. I'm very relaxed in the hills. You know, you don't think about, you know, your, your mortgage and your cell phone payment and the little fight you had with your wife when you're on the hills. So um, for me, it's kind of, I'm not a horribly religious person, but for me, it's kind of more like church, I think.
0: Yeah, uh, man, I, I hear that. I, I feel the same way about certain things that I do in the outdoors. Like if I'm fly fishing and I'm, I'm dry fly fishing. Yeah nothing none of the bs in life is going between my ears it's just very simple flowing river don't, like trying to trick a little dumb fish and uh it's it 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 serves a good purpose i think people i, I love talking to people like you who figured out that's what you need okay like you, you yeah, need to be much. in the outdoors doing doing your thing and you know y- you you're challenging yourself and I, I like your answer that it's not an adrenaline thing. It's just, a, okay, I've done this. What's, what's going to keep me in that headspace I need to be in but be my, my physical challenge? And it sounds like you're just, you're, you're always thinking about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, it's a great part about what I do for a living is uh, there's a lot of variety. You know, I don't do the same route on the same mountain 100 times a year. And that variety for me works. Um, uh, this is kind of a second or third life for me in terms of work. Um, my last profession I was a teacher. Prior to that, I wore a suit and tie to work for eight years doing sales. I sat in a cubicle for you know forty hours a week, and uh, and I'll say that forty hours a week is way harder than getting to the top of an eight thousand meter peak for sure. <laughs> it's at least for me. Uh,
0: man, I hear you, dude. I don't, I did the, I did the cubicle dweller thing for a while and it is, (sighs) some people can handle it. Some people can't. And I, I couldn't, I had to, I had to do something else and just had to have the freedom in my own personal life to be able to go out into the wild too. Um, so you, that for all of our listeners, we, we have a lot of inspirational people on you know, who've kind of struck out from one career and said, you know what? I want to be a dog trainer or I want to do this or I want to do that. And it's, you know, say what you want about this country, but I'm talking to a fella here who was a cubicle dweller, was a teacher and decided I like climbing mountains and you made that your career. And I think that's just, I think it's a testament to so much that's awesome about where we live and the opportunities we have.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I will say that traveling internationally and a lot of it in Nepal um, it makes you certainly see some of the things in our country that I wish were a little better. Uh, but then the flip side of that coin is it really makes you appreciate everything we have here. You know, I know, you know, like generations of Sherpa that have worked to get, you know, a child or a grandchild, just an education. Yep. Um, so to, to have the amount of opportunity that we have here and the ability to change from one profession to another and, and actually, follow dreams as opposed to just scrape by to, you know, put food on the tables, something that we do have a privilege here that um, a lot of people in the world aren't fortunate enough to have.
0: Yeah, for sure. And do you think, I mean, I know I, we'll get to the dogs here for everybody who's listening, but I, do you think, um, cause I, I've traveled quite a bit as well for my, for my career. And it's what I've realized, you know, going to Africa, going to South America, wherever I realized that most of the people I meet are awesome. And like, it doesn't, Absolutely. it doesn't matter where you are. And it's, it's a neat thing to see what's important to people in different places. And you mentioned going to Argentina and I, I got to go down there a couple of years ago and I probably wasn't in the same place you were. You were probably down in Patagonia, I'm guessing.
1: Uh, I was on uh, a or so based out of Mendoza. Oh, okay. There. Yeah. I mean,
0: we, we were in a different spot, but the people down there, you know, and I don't know what you'd consider Argentina, probably second world. Um, it's, you know, it's an amazing country, but the people were so nice and so family and community oriented. And I was just like, man, this is, it's just a beautiful culture down there. And it being, being exposed to stuff like that really changes your worldview when you come home. You're like, man, I, at least for me, it just makes me appreciate that there are so many good people out there.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there's plenty of wonderful people here and, you know, the friends and family I have here in the States are just the best. But I'll say as a culture, I think, you know, we could progress a little bit. I think we could be a little better, uh, maybe even take a kind of a step back. I find that some of the poorest people in the world, uh, in my experience, are frequently some of the happiest and yeah. the most content. You know, I, I spend a lot of time with uh, little kids in Nepal, you know, that, I mean, by our standards would be poorer than poor. And I think they're happier than a lot of the children that I see here in the States. And I think it's just kind of a, it has a lot to do with family dynamic, of course, um, but also I think just, um kind of managing expectations. And if what you want out of the world is happiness and relationships, then that's something that you can foster anywhere that doesn't require, you know, resources and money. Um, and I think that we could learn from that for sure. I, I try and bring some of that home with me.
0: I could not agree with you more. And I, you know, I, I struggle with that. I have twin seven-year-old daughters and I try to get them to appreciate life. Like, Hey, do you know how good you have it? And I want them to do challenging things. And care about people and understand, like you know, the key to happiness. I, I think we've been lied to a lot about what what what's going to make us happy. And you know, Very we much. think it's material things, and really, it's like a good dog and something challenging and some people you love that you like really connect with. And the, you know, the answer is not you know what we're going to buy or Instagram likes or all that stuff. Like it's it's simple in theory, like to, to find happiness, it's a lot harder to go out and actually do it. And that's, that's why I love your story. Um, Let's get into this dog, man. So you, you go to Nepal, you, you climb in the Himalayas, you've, you've done crazy stuff. And at one point (laughs) you had a dog come along for the ride. And so, so walk us through how that started.
1: Yeah, I was uh, leading a group of climbers in Nepal last year, and we were doing a kind of a warm-up mountain um, in preparation for a taller, more challenging mountain called Barunsi. Uh, but the first peak we did is called Mira Peak, which uh, by Himalayan standards is relatively small. It's uh, a little bit over 21,000 feet, which is still you know taller than the highest peaks that we have here in North or South America. But... Um, But on the way down from this climb, uh, we packed up our high camp and we're walking down a glacier. And all of our climbers are wearing, you know, their thousand-dollar boots and their, you know, expedition jackets and parkers and things, uh, or roped up on a glacier. And past all these climbers runs this little stray dog that I'd seen from the town of Kari a couple days prior. Uh, And she came up the glacier, past all the climbers and ropes, and met us at about seventeen and a half thousand feet. And, um, she's a really sweet dog. I gave her a little piece of beef jerky and, uh, she ended up following us for the next three weeks for the rest of our expedition and followed us to Baruncee base camp. Um, and long story short, she eventually followed us all the way to the summit of Baruncee, which is a very challenging mountain that has over 5,000 feet of rope that we put up just to allow access for the climbers to get there safely. And, uh. She went up and beat me to the summit, which is the highest that any dog has climbed anywhere in the world.
0: So that's a very, very uh, distilled version of, yeah. of w- what really happened with that dog. Um, so when you say 5,000 feet of roped, like e- explain that, because what this dog is doing. So you you kind of alluded to the gear that we need to you know and by we i mean people may way more uh, you you what you need uh but this dog had nothing and so you're like explain what you have to do to get to that summit and then it, it it'll kind of frame frame up how a dog just runs ahead of you and does it
1: yeah it was just completely out of place um for the climbers on this trip they had trained for literally years prior this is not a beginner's climb this is not something that People do as their first climb or even their second or third or tenth climb. Uh, people train for years and years and climb progressively more challenging peaks to be there. Uh, they all came in from countries all over the world with, you know, a hundred pounds of equipment and clothing, you know, the best gear materials that are known to man. Uh, when I do an expedition, I'm probably, you know, rolling in with eight or $10,000 worth of equipment. And this is all stuff that is designed to make extreme conditions a little more hospitable for the climber. So we're wearing these huge Arctic mittens, and you know, wearing you know boots that are like ski boots, but then another layer on top of that. Um, it's very, very challenging conditions. Um, we had temperatures there that you know, wind chill would be negative twenty degrees, negative thirty degrees, uh, and then on top of that. We're doing uh, a technical climb, so we're not just walking up a mellow ski slope. There's sections of rock climbing that were vertical. There's sections of snow and ice that were actually, um, you know, vertical or past vertical, actually overhanging. And um, at that point, when I did this climb, after 16 years of climbing, it was probably one of the more challenging mountains I've done, you know, top two or three for sure. So. For us as climbers with all of this equipment and preparation and knowledge um, to have a dog follow us along with nothing, uh, you know, it's not like we did the expedition with the expectation of having this dog there. If we had, you know, maybe we would have brought equipment for the dog, but she went up just with the fur in her back and her bare feet and did something that the vast majority of climbers couldn't do, let alone you know, most people in general. So two
0: things what's the first thought that goes through your mind when you see that dog up there? Are you like, well, this dog's gonna die? Or are you just like, oh, this is kind of an anomaly? I mean, what's what's going through your head when you see it?
1: Um, at first, when we saw in the glacier, that was kind of mellow terrain um, as we were coming down that easier mountain. And then the next few days was, you know, just hiking along a trail for three or four days to the next mountain. And I was very, very pleased. I'm a huge dog person. And the most challenging part of this job for me is leaving my dog and my wife for weeks or months at a time. And so to have a companion like that on the trail was great for me. I mean, it's therapeutic. You know, the the first day she followed me around, she slept outside my tent in the morning. She was just outside and had a little layer of snow on her where it snowed the night before. Um, but I couldn't get her to come in that night. And then after the snow, she slept in my tent with me every night and I shared my food with her. Um, so that I I really enjoyed having the companionship um, on this particular expedition. I was the only um, Western guide on the trip. So I didn't have any coworkers or Sherpa there and clients, but you know, it was nice to have somebody to be in a tent with you at night. Um, so that was great. Um, that said, as we got to Baronsi and established our base camp and kind of we progressively go higher and come back down as we acclimatize to let our bodies get used to that elevation. So it was kind of cool. It was cute when she followed us first and then we came to base camp. And as we get into the more challenging terrain, um, I definitely, you know, had concern for, her. and when we eventually went for our summit push, uh, I actually tied her up in base camp, uh, and gave instructions to the locals who were there to how to take care of her and feed her while we were gone. Because where we were going, I really didn't think that she could make it. And even if she could physically do it, um, just the conditions there were so extreme that I didn't know if she'd be able to survive that. Um, and so I tried to keep her in camp. I really did. Um, and she apparently broke free or chewed through whatever tether she had and met up with us on the first day and then followed us for the next several days to the top. But, yeah, I was, uh, I was very concerned for her. I just couldn't stop her. Yeah. I, I certainly wasn't encouraging her.
0: <laughs> she, she was not going to leave her supply of beef jerky behind, huh?
1: I guess not. Yeah. She, I mean, our cook was in base camp. She could have stayed there and had better food, but she had um, some very, uh I don't know what it was, some just impressive drive to stay with us. I have no idea why.
0: Do you, do you have a theory? Do you have a theory why she kind of took to you so hard?
1: Um, I really think that um, dogs um, possess and display, you know, pretty high range of, uh, of emotion and emotional intelligence. And I think that sometimes animals do what they need to do to get by, you know, seeking food, water, shelter. And I do think that some dogs um, uh, are certainly people pleasers. You know, you see that with, you know, dogs uh, in, in my experience growing up, you know, hunting dogs and things like that. that they want to make the people around them happy. They have that drive. And I think that that was the case here. Um, I think that she saw my attachment to her, that she um, liked my companionship and I treated her well, and I think she just wanted to stay near us. Um, dogs in Nepal in general aren't treated super well. Um, rabies is still very, very common there. Um, and so some of the locals, even from a very young age are, um, kind of taught to shoo away dogs or to kick them away and they're not always treated especially well. Um, and so I think when this particular animal, uh, had somebody that, you know, just kind to her, would pet her, keep her warm, give her a little bit of food. Um, I think that, um, that she really appreciated that. So I'm sure that was partly a motivation, but if all she wanted was food and water, she, she could have stayed at two dozen other places along the way and been perfectly happy. Yeah. She but, wa-
0: she wanted more than that. And it, you know, <clears throat> what I keep thinking about that, you know, you try to be careful not reading too much into you know, what they do, but at the same time that, you know, they're pack animals and that dog, you know, met up with you. And that's, you know, a lot of the really good trainers that we work with who, you know, they're positive trainers, they're praise and encouragement, confidence builders, you know, their their training programs are, are structured around that pack mentality. And that dog, you know, that dog wants to be with you part of its pack. And they, they don't, you know, modern dogs don't seem to differentiate between other dogs and humans. We're all just, we're all just buddies or enemies or whatever. And that dog, you know, maybe that dog was mistreated a little bit and then found somebody who treated her well. And she's like, man, this is my pack. Like we're, we're doing this together. And then, you know, to try to keep her in camp and didn't, didn't she at one point chew through her leash to make sure she got to you guys?
1: Yeah. Yeah. When, um, when we left for our final, final push to go toward the summit, um, She broke free of her restraint and followed us up. Um, I was particularly concerned with her on that last push because prior to that, um, our Sherpa had gone up to establish some camps, and we went up, set up camp, um, and when the Sherpa came back down, um, she wouldn't follow him back down. She stayed in camp, and this is over 20,000 feet on a glacier. We had 40-mile-an-hour winds and she stayed outside alone for two nights up there. And I have no idea why. There wasn't anybody there, there's no food there, there's no reason for her to be there. Um, but she stayed up high on the mountain. Um, the next time the Sherpa went up to finish setting the ropes to the summit, um, I, I was very concerned that she was would even be alive. You know, I, I gave him a little bit of food and said, please, if you see the dog, give her some food. Um, bring her back down if you can. But I mean, this is breaking my heart that this dog is, you know, just alone up there. And when they got to her, she said, she's fine. She won't go back down. They followed her up almost to the summit of the mountain, fixing all the ropes and then followed them all the way back down. And then the following day is when we went for the summit. So she'd almost summit of the mountain the day before, come down. I tried to tie her up in camp so she wouldn't have to go through that experience again. And she just refused to not climb that mountain. And the The trust that she had in, in me and the Sherpa was just unbelievable. You know, I, I work with some of my clients for, you know, days on climbs or in some cases years over a period of climb to develop um, a level of trust, you know, so they can relax and just, you know, come down a slope and know that I've got them. And this dog would climb without a rope on really scary terrain. and um, If I was there, if I was below her, she would climb or she would wait on me. Um, There's a couple of circumstances where um, she actually got on some ice and slipped and would have fallen a good six to eight hundred feet before she stopped. And I was able to catch her. Um, But what was going through her mind that would motivate her to try and get up um, things that were that scary, that dangerous um, just absolutely blows me away. She's an incredible animal. Man, so
0: how like how did she navigate i'm trying to just imagine it you know you you talked about like beyond vertical and you know you guys are using ropes how does she navigate that stuff i mean how does she navigate a cliff
1: some of it um on rock she was impressive honestly um she would scamper up stuff that you know it was kind of like low range technical climbing for humans um and what she could grip with her claws was just Absolutely incredible, and she would find ways to go from little edge to little edge. And she would just commit to things. If it was something that was taller, than she would she would just jump and hope she made it. Um, on the snow and ice, I think that there are a couple of places where instead of going through extremely steep section sections, she can maybe switch back over to the edge of um, well along this ridge. We have a lot of what's called cornices where the wind blows sideways over the ridge and it creates this little crown of snow Mm -hmm. and we don't go near that crown because it wouldn't support the weight of a person but i think in a a couple cases here would support the weight of a dog so she could go into some different terrain that we couldn't and so that's how she would circumvent some of the steeper terrain um and some of it honestly i have no clue you know i i obviously wanted to take good care of her but there's times where all of my focus is just on getting myself to a certain place and uh, taking care of the client, monitoring the Sherpa. And I would think like, oh, well, surely she'll stay here. And I would work my butt off for 10 minutes to get over something hard. And I'd look down. She'd be standing right next to me. I, I don't know how she did it, honestly. It's,
0: it's so amazing. When you're when you're doing this climb, how many clients did you have
1: with you? Uh, originally, we started off with six clients on baruncee and all of those clients got to our high camp, which is twenty-one thousand feet. And so there's six clients, myself, our dog, and then uh, we had three sherpa up there as well. And when we went up, we had kind of a marginal weather forecast, but traditionally on this mountain, things tend to pass through pretty quickly. Um, And in this case, when we're there, it didn't. Uh, We had a windstorm that came in and we had consistent 40 to 60 mile an hour winds for days while we were up there, which prevent us from climbing. Uh, The Sherpa I was with have been doing this for decades. They say they've never seen anything like it. And, um, so we ended up waiting out to storm for, we we're meant to be in high camp for about six or eight hours. We ended up waiting it out for five days. And throughout the course of those days, a couple of days in a couple of my clients were like, ah, this isn't for me. I want to go down. And we'd send them down with a Sherpa. And then a day or two later, somebody else would say, I'm tired of being in this tent. This is crazy. I need to go down. And they would go down. And it ended up being, um, one woman from Finland who went up myself the sherpa and the dog so we we ended up going down to a very small party but uh but that dog outlasted five humans that were safe and sound and tents and negative 40 degree sleeping bags
0: were, were the uh were your clients were they cool with the dog or were they like hey man can you focus on me so i don't die and forget this month
1: <laughs> um i worked very hard not to let that happen um we, we had one gentleman that had an allergy, so I made sure that he was never in a tent that the dog was in. Yep. Um, but honestly, I, I think at least to some degree, every person there absolutely loved that dog. Um, even our porters and cook staff, um, an expedition like this takes a huge amount of uh, help from porters and Sherpa. So to support myself and these seven clients, we had an additional 40 some people Carrying the equipment, uh, setting up tents, putting up ropes. I mean, th- those are the real heroes of this style of climbing. There's no way that we could do it without them. Yeah. Um, but it, I saw the biggest change from the staff because, like I said, um, Nepali people in general are kind of range from mild disdain to just like vague tolerance of dogs. And um, so they went from not very happy to see her to uh, just were in awe of her. Um, you know, they they were going to other camps and telling people, "You have to come see this dog. You got to see the dog that climbed the mountain." And our cook started making food just for the dog. So their uh, their tolerance for the dog just went through the roof. It, it went from could hardly stand her to absolutely loved her. Um, she she really earned her keep there. So
0: you know, that's an interesting. An interesting case study, a little sidebar here, but, you know, you mentioned in Nepal and, you know, the rabies prevalence. And so it's just a safety thing to not be overly friendly with dogs, you know, like societally there, dogs pose a different kind of danger than they do to us here. You know, we love our dogs. They're part of the family. And so they're just, you know, they're being raised to go, hey, that, you know, whatever you think about that, 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 that can give you this sickness that's going to be real real bad could kill you even and so they're looking at it through that lens it's hard for us to imagine and yet you get this special dog who says you know what i like this dude i'm going to climb a mountain with him and then your support staff and everybody who's with you sees this dog doing something that's not dangerous it's doing the exact opposite and they're going man i you know i like this thing like it's it's a cool testament to how awesome dogs really are
1: oh yeah absolutely yeah she. Nothing against anybody I worked with or the clients on that climb, but my favorite person on that trip was definitely the <laughs> dog. <you guys.
0: laughs> uh, I hear you, man. I, I like hanging around dogs a lot. So when you're talking, you're, you're talking elevations of 21,000 feet, 22,000 feet, and anyone who's ever been to Colorado and done a 14er, or, you know, has been even above, you know, I live at 800 feet. So when I go elk <laughs> hunting, you know, like it's yeah. 9,000, 10,000 feet. And I, I try to keep myself in good shape. I, you know, I run a lot and even it doesn't matter. Like when I get there, I'm like, if, if I hit 10,000 feet and then it's like, it takes me a day or two where I'm like, I, you know, I bend oh. over to tie my boots. I stand up and I get lightheaded, you know, like there's nothing you can do about it. And you're talking about doubling that. And you're talking about People who have trained and, you know, you have obviously a ton of experience and Sherpas, they live there. They do that stuff. They've done it more than anyone. And then you've got clients who you would assume and hope are plunking down all that money and carving that time out of their life that they're they're good to go. I'm sure I'm sure mileage varies on that some. Uh, But then you have this this dog show up. And this dog, you know, from what I read about it at points was like running ahead of you and acting just like a dog on a hiking trail, but at, you know, nineteen, twenty, past 20,000 feet, which is so incredible.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it didn't really dawn on me at the time, you know, while it was happening. Um, I can't say that I gave it a whole lot of thought, but, um, then coming home and speaking to more people about it and writing about it, um, just the the physical ability of what this dog is able to do is just absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, going over, I mean, just snow and rock and things in bare paws alone in those temperatures, um, just, I guess, just through breeding, uh, how they're able to get to a point that they can even stand that is amazing. You know, you wouldn't catch me walking up a mountain barefoot. No, um, no you ever um, got a blister and, and had to go hike? Yeah. yeah. And even small things like how this animal didn't get snow blindness. We're on snow consistently for days and days at a time at extremely high elevation where the UV um, is as much as 10 times as powerful as it is at sea level. How she was able to see, uh, I just flat out don't understand how she was able to stay warm. Um, I, I don't know if it's the breed of dog or this particular animal. Uh, was just more inclined to be able to handle it, but um, but then you know above all the the elevation there elevation for climbers is uh, the great equalizer you know here in Seattle if I go to Mount Rainier you know ten to fourteen thousand feet I can climb you know two or three thousand feet up in an hour on some of these higher peaks I can only go maybe two hundred feet an hour because it's so difficult man. and I can't say that I ever saw any sign of fatigue with her whatsoever. Um, when we went up, she would kind of go slow and stay with us, but on the way down from the summit, which is almost 23 and a half thousand feet, she would run ahead. And I mean, imagine how little oxygen there has to be for you to get out of breath going downhill. You know, I'm, I'm like you said, you know, fit person, you know, I'd like to think that I can keep up with about anybody that I need to, but you know, I'm like, going as fast as I can downhill, and this dog's running ahead, and then looking over her shoulder all impatiently. you know, why aren't you keeping up? (laughs) Um, But yeah, what she was able to um, physically do up there, it just, um, it blows my mind. I haven't had anybody be able to explain to me really how she could handle those conditions and be able to do what she did. Um, I mean, she lived at a pretty high elevation. The town that I first saw her in was probably about 14,000 feet, but Still, the difference between fourteen thousand and twenty-five is just exponential. It, it, it's, um, it's different worlds. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't understand it or explain it. Um, she's she's a special animal.
0: Well, that doesn't it make you wonder though? Without question, that dog was a special animal. Is a special animal, but you know we don't ever dogs don't get put in that situation. So you don't know, like, how uncommon is it for a dog to be able to do that? And, you know, one thing that that I started looking up, because, you know, when I knew we were going to do this interview, I'm like, do dogs get altitude sickness? Like, are they, you know, Mm -hmm. do they they get the same kind of symptoms and same kind of sickness as we do? And it seems like they can, like, it seems Mm -hmm. like they can suffer from some of the similar stuff that we have. But at the same time, you know, like the oxygen thing, like you said, the, the the altitude being the great equalizer, you know, our ability to use oxygen and like if you look at the highest VO two max out of an athlete that they've ever measured, so that you know, the volume of oxygen you can use, um, it's like a Nordic skier and it's like the, you know it's like 90.7 or something they've measured sled dogs that are like 240 250 so essentially okay. uh sled dogs you know like in and, and it's tied to like aerobic uh, ability and you know it, a higher vo2 max you know somebody who sits on the couch and eats potato chips every day is not going to have a very high vo2 max somebody who runs and you know it's it's variable but it's tends to you know it's tied to athleticism and you think about a sled dog almost three times you know like an average well-trained sled dog has a vo2 max almost three times what you know the best athletes we could ever produce have so i I wonder about that dog and i'm like can they just use oxygen better than us like are they are they just built to function better in that environment i don't know that but it's it's interesting to think about
1: it makes sense i could definitely be it yeah i'm i'm now a scientist and that's I think kind of beyond my understanding of uh, what these animals are physically capable of, but um, I will say they ran circles around people. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) So throughout this, this experience, I mean, how long does this take for for when the dog shows up to when you're back down?
1: Uh, Total expedition for the climbers was about five weeks and the dog was with us for a little bit over three of those weeks.
0: And so by, day 20 you're pretty hooked on this pup huh oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) did you did you think all right let's say what day was it because i know you don't have this dog i know i know the story of where this dog ended up but we're like how close were you were like well this dog's coming home with me
1: oh i i really really considered it i mean to the point that you know i'm sending like texts via satellite to my wife to speak to (laughs) her and see what she thinks um but if I live on a farm in Ohio still, there's no way you, you, There's no way that that dog wouldn't be with me right now. But um, that's not my situation. What, what you're looking at here is pretty much my whole home. I live in a 700 square foot apartment in Seattle, and we already have a 70 pound pit bull rescue uh, <laughs> that we adopted last year. Who's kind of more of a cat person. She doesn't love being around other dogs. And... So in my mind, I tried to think about what would be best for this dog, even if it meant that she wouldn't have a set home, but would she rather be in the Hills and free in Nepal and able to run around? I mean, the, one of the facts about climbing in Nepal is even once you've summoned it, your trip's not over. It's still like a four-day hike for us just to get to a place that we could fly out. Yep. So, you know, we still did, I think it's 25, 30 miles that this dog is doing. I don't know if my dog here has ever done 30 miles in her life. She's more of a couch dog. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about bringing this this hero of a dog, this an athlete, and cooping her up in a small house and, um, excuse me, a small apartment. Um it just didn't seem fair to me. I knew that she would be more happy there. Um, but yeah, it weighed on me. It absolutely broke my heart. Those last few days walking out thinking about what might happen to her because we're still in a pretty remote area. Um, and all I could think is I'm going to go to this airstrip and put my equipment on an airplane and fly out. And this dog's just going to be, you know, homeless again on the street in look And, um, the way out um, goes up over a 19,000-foot pass, and then you have to repel down the other side. And so the day or so leading up to that, I'd kind of focused on the technical aspect of that and how am I going to repel with a dog and keep her safe and make her feel comfortable. Uh, and I have to say that once we got past that rappel and we touched down to the ground and I unclipped her from me, um, I mean, just tears came to my eyes. I'm like, well, there's nothing left now. You know, there's a day or two of walking and then I'm going to lose this dog. Uh, and I was just distraught. And uh, our base camp manager came over to me. He could tell that I was upset. And he asked me what was wrong. and I said, oh, I just, you know, I feel awful that, you know, I can't take this dog with me, that I have to leave her alone. And he said, oh, no, no. I said, don't worry about that. He said, I've already made arrangements. He said, this dog isn't ever going to be alone again. She'll always be taken care of and fed because I'm going to take her home. Um, and in Nepal, you can't put a dog on an airplane. So he paid a family member to hike in three days past where the first bus could get him, pick up this dog, hike back out, ride a bus for two days, and take him back to his home in Kathmandu. Um, this is a really expensive process. It's, um, it's difficult to transport things in Nepal. There's just not the infrastructure that we have. Mm-hmm. So he paid $100 to have this dog move, which to us is not... I mean, I would have paid everything I had to get her to a safe place, but... An average income for a person in Nepal is about $800 a year. So this man threw down months of income to make sure that this street dog was going to be taken care of and have a good home. Um, and I, I, of course, ended up giving him some money to help cover all the costs. But um, but now she she's not alone anymore. She's fed well. Um, she lives in a place with a, a few Sherpa. And is I saw her for the first time last month since this climb I was able to go visit her while I was in Nepal and uh, she lost some weight when we we're on our climb and she's put the weight back on is looking very happy and healthy uh, she, I don't know you know but she seemed to recognize me immediately and was really happy to see me um, and I'm gonna get to see her again this weekend when I'm in Nepal so every time I go back you now I'm able to visit her and, and in between she has the best dog owner that I know in all of Nepal
0: Man, that's that's so cool. There, there's a couple things there. So first, I have no doubt that dog remembers you. I think, uh, I think you know, sense memory. You travel a lot, like, and you know, in our sense, of smell sucks compared to a dog. But you show up in places where that smell hits you. Of you know, you've been somewhere. For me, it's out west when I smell sage. Like I'm in a sage flat. Like as soon as I get out of my truck somewhere there, it's just like, oh, like it's just. I love it. Or, you know, you get way, well, for me, up in the mountains, and it just smells different. Like, the air smells cleaner, and you've got the pine. And, you know, you think about a dog. Like, that dog knows exactly who you were, like (laughs) for sure. And I always think about this. My dog, my lab, I can tell when she knows we show up someplace, even if we haven't been there for months, when she looks out the window, or I think she can smell the change when you're driving or something, where she knows we're certain places. She's like, oh, this is my happy place. Let's go. And it's not, it's a different reaction than just being happy to be with you and be somewhere. So I fully believe that dog remembers you. That dog will remember you for the rest of its life. Um, So that when you, when you're walking out and you got to rappel down that and you, you clipped her to you or you harnessed her to you. Um, she was, she was like 45 pounds, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right around that size. Not a very big dog, but, um, yeah, I mean, and of course they make harnesses for dogs to be able to do these kind of things for like search and rescue, but we weren't exactly planning on having a dog there. So what we did was, um, I just took a piece of cord and tied a harness around her the best I could and attached her to me. And, um, what must have been going through her head? I can't even imagine, you know, we're backing over like a cliff, a sheer vertical cliff. It's well over 200 feet straight down. And, you know, this makes humans nervous who understand the process of what's going on. And she gave me a little whimper and licked my face and we went over the edge and. To be honest, if I was a dog and somebody did that to me, I would sure bite him. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it looked like, you know, to me it would seem like torture if he didn't understand what was going on. But like everything else on the climb, she just went with it, was calm, acted like she'd done a hundred times before. Um, she doesn't love being on a leash, you know, as an animal that spent all of her life um you know, free. She was very happy to get out of that little harness, yep. but um, But yeah, her, her tolerance for that just blows my mind. Why she would be comfortable with that, I don't understand, but um, her, just her patience with it was absolutely incredible. She did better than most humans that I know doing something like that for the first time.
0: she did better than I would if you tried to get me to go over <laughs> that. I, get, I would be biting and scratching and crying <laughs> and <laughs> all, all kinds of not, uh, reactions I wouldn't be proud of. Um, What it makes me think, so we we had a veterinarian on here uh, a while ago named Ira McCauley, and he was, we were talking about injuries dogs get in the field, and he was talking about how quickly dogs heal and how, you know, they're not, you know, part of it is probably tied just to their sheer, uh, you know, physicality. They're, They're, you know, like they're specimens, right? Well, a lot of them are. But he said he thinks it's because they're not, tied up in all of the emotional BS that we have. You know, like the average human breaks their leg, you know, falling down on the ice or whatever, goes into the hospital. It's like, oh my God, poor me. I got a busted leg. I can't walk. I can't work, whatever. And he's like, a dog doesn't have any of that. They just think, okay, my leg hurts. Now it's getting a little better. I want to do this. I want to sniff this. I want to do this. And they're not, they're not locked up in so many of the the mental emotional things that weigh us down or, or we let get in the way and i wonder with that dog doing that amazing stuff you know climbing with you and and you know wearing her paws down to nothing on ice and in in crazy harsh conditions that dog just doesn't know any better she's like hey i met these dudes i like um they you know they treat me well we've got this little pack thing going on they want to go up there i'm going up there they want to go down there i'm going down there and she's not worried like Man, if I slip here and fall, I'm dead. She's thinking this is fun to be with my buddies, and it's cool. You know, I mean it's it's Probably amazing. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I I love I love that about dogs. So, i i want to I want to talk a little bit about this this decision process that you had to you had to go through when you're coming down, and you know, like the, the, the you know the sand is draining out of the hourglass. Like you're gonna you're gonna get on this plane, you're gonna leave eventually. You get that dog repelled down there and you're thinking you have to abandon this dog but what you said was you couldn't take that dog into the situation that you live in because it would be worse for that dog and that that point i admire that so much because i see people make decisions around dogs where they're like oh i like you know german short hair pointers even though i don't hunt I, I don't have a backyard, I live in a city, and then you get this dog that's bred to run, sniff, seek out, adventure, all kinds of stuff, and you lock it inside, and it's like, well, because that's what I wanted. Well, what about the dog? And you're sitting here going, as much as it kills me to abandon this dog, it's still better than to not take it out of where it lives and bring it and keep it in a little apartment versus just saying, I got to... I got to stomach this and just let this dog be here. I mean, that, that's amazing to me that you did that.
1: I appreciate that you understand that. And I've gotten this small amount of feedback from people, you know, in the last few months of, you know, how could you have possibly left that dog there? And really it's, it's exactly what you said. I, I was trying to look at it from the dog's point of view. Like I could have very easily brought her home. It wouldn't have been that difficult. It wouldn't have been that expensive. Uh, but ultimately I think it would have been something that only benefited me. I think it would have been so selfish. Um, and I think that there's maybe few worse things that I could have done to that dog than bring her to a small place and just see her lose her spirit and yeah. have to become something that she wasn't. And um, and I think that, you know, if we try and put ourselves in animal's positions, maybe we'd make some more intelligent decisions in what we do with them sometimes. Um, yeah, I grew up with dogs my entire life, and I absolutely love them, and I went through like a 10-year stretch in this profession where I didn't have an animal because I had to move every few months, yep. and I knew that while I would love it, um, it would be a decision based entirely on me, and that it wouldn't be fair to the animal. Now, as soon as we got a place that we knew we were going to be in long term, uh, we got an apartment, I got a dog like three weeks later, I love <laughs> that animal, um, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I love them enough to try and be respectful of them and do what's right for the animal. And I know that bringing such an athletic animal uh, into such a small space would have um, just been crushing for the dog. And um, I was hoping that somebody would take care of her, um, but being able to walk out those last couple of days and know that she had a good home, that she was going to be taken care of was just unbelievable. Uh, the man who adopted her, we would walk into these tea houses and dogs are never allowed in tea houses. We'd walk into a tea house to spend the night or to get food. And the owners would try and shoot the dog out. He said, no, no, no. He said, this is the dog you heard about because <laughs> news had spread down the valley. This is the dog that climbed Baruncey and she is with us. And she stayed in the rooms in my bed with me at night. And he would get traditional cheap nepali food you know rice that would cost a dollar and he'd spend three times that much to get a meat plate for the dog <laughs> yeah it was just blowing local people's minds he was getting like white people food and giving it to this dog um and you just don't see that over there and that's i knew he was hooked, you know he he was treating and feeding that dog better than he took care of himself and um, he's continued to do that since then um, she gets regular veterinary care and is taken very very good care of so she she has a great home um, but that said it was still incredibly difficult to leave her even though i knew she was going to a good spot i didn't know when i'd see her again I the last hour at the airport i spent with her just petting her and hanging out and I'm not a super emotional person, but it definitely brought a tear to my eye when I left her. I mean, I don't always do that when I leave my own home, but leaving this animal behind them uh, was difficult. It makes me feel much better now knowing that she has a great home.
0: Yeah, it's a it's an interesting end to the story, because if you I would think 90 percent if people heard 90 percent of that story, The natural assumption would be like, all right, Don took this dog home and it's lived in his home. But this is a way better conclusion to it because it's for the dog. And that dog is it it just, it just it's not what you expect, but it's the right thing. I think. And I I just I love hearing that. Yeah. It's it's, you know, we we try to push that. Once in a while, people get mad at me for this, for this podcast, but we try to really get people to understand like the the choices around what kind of dog you're going to get, you know, based partially on what you want, what do you want to do with the dog? But what, like being honest about your situation, how much do you work? How much are you going to work with that dog? How much are you going to train it? How much are you going to take it out and get it the exercise? Like to be honest about every, every aspect of it, because it's, it's really easy to kind of get lost in the looks of a dog or this trendy dog or that kind of dog or something But it's it's so unfair to the dog. It it, it can be unfair to the dog. And really, when you, you know, part of the reason you got so hooked on this dog wasn't just because, uh, you know, she climbed a mountain with you, which is crazy, but it was because she's an awesome dog. <laughs> and when you oh, get yeah. exposed to awesome dogs, you go, man, that's, that's available. Even if it's not to me right now, that's available to somebody or anybody who wants to own a dog could have that experience of, of owning an awesome dog, but you got, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just a luck thing. Like you're not just going to go pick a litter of golden retrievers and be like that one, <laughs> you know, like there, there's stuff to consider. And so I think that's a really neat I think it's just neat how that ended up with you.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think as people who love and enjoy dogs and especially dog owners, I think we have a a pretty large responsibility to help take care of those animals and and not just our own to, you know, help others when possible. And um, so one of the things that I've gotten involved in after having climbed um, this mountain, they ended up naming the dog Baru after the mountain that she climbs it. And uh, and it didn't start that way, right? Uh, we originally named her Mira because we met her on Mira peak. And then the owner is like, nah, Mira's not cool enough. We got to name her Baru after the big mountain. She climbed, <laughs> uh, and I love that he renamed her. Really yeah. like But, um, one of the things that I've gotten involved in since this is, you know, I feel like we made a really great impact for this one dog in Kathmandu, um, and started looking into what we could do to help others. And there's a great organization there uh, called street dog care. And just through kind of raising awareness and things like this, um, we've helped raise enough money for this organization to vaccinate a thousand dogs in the last year. Um, so this organization, StreetDogCare.org, if uh, anyone wants to take a look at it, um, they're a great nonprofit organization that's based out of Kathmandu uh, that gives uh, veterinary care and rabies vaccines to stray dogs like Baru there in Kathmandu. So that
0: that organization is the goal. Is, is it like a grassroots goal to start changing the perception of dogs? You know, not only will it keep them healthier, the ones they're encountering and they're treating, but it's, it's going to serve a, a broader societal purpose to have healthier dogs
1: there. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I don't want to give the impression that, um, that, you know, people don't have pet dogs and things in Nepal. They certainly do. But when you see a stray dog, um, you're, you kind of have to keep your guard up yep. and, um, And so taking some of these dogs and getting them in good homes and getting them healthy um, is it's a small thing that we can do. I think that's going to make a big difference over there. A big push with this particular organization is, you know, adopt, don't shop. So instead of getting something from puppy mills, there's great dogs that need homes that are on the street. They might need a vaccine or something, but then they'll make perfectly good pets. Um, So I really appreciate that there's just this woman and a small handful of people who help her, um, that are taking dogs that have pretty terrible lives and getting them healthy and then helping place them in homes where they're going to be taken care of on more of a long-term basis. Mm-hmm.
0: I'll tell you what, man, when you dig into general pet adoption and, uh, you know, like that that whole world, you run into a lot of really good people. <laughs> like you, you do. You yeah. run into people you know who are who are doing good things, and it's 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 really really cool to see. Um, I have to ask you this before before we wrap this sucker up. So I I went down a, a Everest rabbit hole at one point. I'm one of those assholes out there who was like, Hey, I think I could climb Everest, and so mm-hmm. I started. I, I what happened is I read a book called Summit. And, you know, it was it was like a murder fiction book based around climbing Everest, you know. And I started, but it had a lot of, there was a lot of research involved in it. And I, I had no idea what went into something like that. You know, it's it's easy if you don't know to just be like, oh, yeah, you fly out there, you climb up this mountain, whatever. <laughs> and there, as you well know, there's a little bit more that goes into it than that. And I started like kind of obsessing over it. And my wife was like, you're not going to climb Everest. I'm not letting you climb Everest. This is not going to happen. You're not taking, you know, two months out of your life to go do this, whatever. But in in all the things I started looking up, it's so, it's such an impressive accomplishment in a lot of ways. You know, it's getting kind of a weird, um, because it's so popular now, you know, and it's getting kind of weird that way where it's like, it feels like there's like a lot of outward ego going on where it's like, some people do it like for the personal reasons, like you're talking about where you just have to be there and you want that personal challenge. It feels like some people are like, I want, I just want to wave that flag around. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of getting weird that way. But what I want to ask you is like, what's the closest call you've had up there where you were like, well, this is it for Don. Like what was the one time where you were like, man, this is, this has gotten really, really scary.
1: Oh, um, (laughs) could you, can you boil um... it down to one time? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and and honestly, I think that you know if we're doing things right, um, that shouldn't be a very common occurrence. Um, and there's there's a very big difference between what I will do with clients when I'm being paid to be a guide and I have a, you know a higher level of responsibility, um, and you know maybe what I would do on a personal trip. But um, I think um, honestly just in general, the more scary circumstances just kind of come around overcrowding. You know, we had a little bit of that on, you know, um, Monasloo when I was there last month just seeing, you know, 50 people hanging on one rope when there should only be about five. Um, but I would say some of the more scary circumstances aren't necessarily something, you know, that happens directly to me, um, but just being reminded of mortality in the mountains for sure. Um, when I was on Barunce, we had a helicopter land right next to our camp. And I didn't know why it was there. And they said, they're doing a rescue. It came back and, um, they said, Hey, need, need you to give us a hand. What's going on? Oh, we got the frozen body. We need to get into this helicopter here. Um, and just seeing what can happen in the mountains. Um, and it's very sobering, you know, what we do there is, it's, it's very enjoyable. It's really gratifying. Um, part of the reason that, that I think that we do enjoy it so much as it does demand so much of our attention because of the potential consequence. But, you know, in this particular case, it was a, it was a Sherpa for a climb who, you know, fell off a trail on an, in an adjacent Valley. And, um, so taking one wrong step on relatively easy terrain, had a huge impact on a great circle of people in this family. And so I tried desperately not to put myself or any of my clients in positions where, Things like that have a realistic possibility of happening. You know, we're always in places where a series of things go wrong. Consequences are big, but I like to try and stay as many steps away from that as I can. And I think that kind of goes back to like the adrenaline junkie thing. I'm not trying to see how close to the edge I can push it. I want to see if I can get up and get down and do it safely. Um, Number one goal is always to come home. I love my dog. I love my wife and my job and what I do. And there's nothing anywhere on any mountain that is more important than coming back to those people. Yeah.
0: Well, that's it for me. Well, it it reminds me, I heard an interview the other day and I don't remember who it was, but they were talking about uh, mixed martial arts and boxing. And Mm -hmm. somebody said, you know, they were, they were told by a coach I'm paraphrasing here, but he wanted to get into boxing and he said, listen, you can't play at this this is this is a combat sport like you you're either in or you're not and you have to understand what this is It's not like something you can dip your toe in or just be like I think this is cool because somebody could knock you out and scramble your eggs and you won't be able to spell your name for the rest of your life like it's the same thing with what you're doing and I was, I'm curious I was curious about like your perspective on the overcrowding and the popularity of it now because of that like is do you see? maybe this is just my perception because I only know it from the news but do you see this and are you you worried that it's like it's becoming something else because it's popular and more accessible now maybe
1: yeah absolutely Um, I mean in general like extremely high guided mountaineering is still kind of in its infancy you know guided trips on everest only started in the 90s uh, and it's only grown since then but this isn't an industry that has been around for decades and decades. So um, I think that the countries in which these mountains are being climbed are still kind of working things out and trying to create legislation that encourages tourism while still maintaining a higher level of safety. Um, A lot of it is on guide services that are working on these mountains and controlling the, um, the quality of clients they have come in, you know, it has... Does this person have a lot of experience or they never climbed anything and they're doing everest for their first climb ever and i mean not that you can't do that i have a couple clients who did everest as their first mountain and excel um but those would be exceptions to the rules um (laughs) you don't recommend that no no (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i mean overcrowding is an issue and that said um i think that some of that is sensationalized in the media you know uh you know like the long lines on everest killed two people today well that's not really the reality nobody's ever died from being in line you know nobody ever dropped dead at walmart standing in line for no reason right it's the same thing on a mountain um not to oversimplify but if you have enough oxygen you have the right equipment you have the right fitness you either go up and you can wait in line or you make the intelligent decision to turn around um unfortunately um i think that sometimes those decisions are financially motivated the sherpa on mountains are given a summit bonus uh, an additional gratuity um in most cases for getting clients to the top and in some cases thousands of dollars which would be the equivalent of somebody told me you know hey if you get somebody to the top of everest today i'll give you two hundred thousand dollars i can't say that that wouldn't you know maybe twist my decision-making ability, at least on some level. So I think that there's some things that we can do, like um, giving gratuities based on a safe return rather than a summit, Um, maybe limiting the number of people that we allow on the mountain. Um, Those are all things that, you know, that we can do. And and as guides, I think, you know, we can always um, continue to build skills to create better clients and, you know, to do a better job than we've done in the past. So yeah, I wouldn't put the the overcrowding and issues on Everest on any one particular person or group of people, but I think that there's improvements that we could probably make all the way around.
0: Yeah, it, it seems like what you said, where it's a developing industry, and you know, you can't be proactive to what you don't know is coming, and so now mm-hmm. it's popular, and so there's a reactive, you know, reaction to it where it's like, okay things are getting unsafe up there. We might get some unscrupulous individuals who are seeing dollar signs. And so it's, it's a weird, it's a weird situation. And I, you know, I hope it levels off for folks like you. Um, this has been one of my favorite interviews ever <laughs> by far. I, I love, I love the story of, uh, of the dog up there and the, and that process and just in hearing about somebody like you doing Uh, these amazing things out there. Um, I just want to thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: That's it for this episode of Sporting Dog Talk. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. And of course, if you liked what you heard on this episode, please, please, please subscribe. That helps us out so much when we get to see the support from our audience. And lastly, thanks for listening.